Perhaps you heard the story of the gentleman that had made a long trip. He flew many miles, and he got out of his plane and got his luggage together and got to his taxi, and the taxi was taking him to go see some family that he hadn't seen in a while. And he had a question for the taxi cab driver, but apparently he was hard of hearing and couldn't get his attention, and so he reached up and just tapped him on the shoulder to try to get his attention to ask him this question. The taxi cab driver was startled to the point of running off the road and into a field, almost hitting a tree. So, of course, the the gentleman, the passenger, gives his apologies to the driver and said, I did not realize that tapping you on the shoulder would cause you to almost kill both of us. I'm, I'm sorry about that. The driver said, you know, it's not your problem. He said, it's not your problem at all. It's my problem. He said, for the last 25 years, I drove a hearse for the local funeral home. So not expecting, of course, someone to become alive and tap him on the shoulder. So the world did not expect Jesus either to live again. And many deny that today, don't they? In fact, we're going to see today as we begin our study that there are many, even in the evangelical world, who struggle with fully believing the biblical record of the resurrection of Jesus. But as we gather here this morning, the Christian church, those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we believe that he is alive today. And we see that confirmed in so many ways. And we're going to talk about a few of those today. And we're also going to be challenged from Scripture because I could preach to the choir this morning and we'd all go home happy. But I want to challenge everyone who is here, whether you're a Christ follower or not, to do something with what you hear today. Because coming here today and all the effort and the time and the energy and the investment of gifting that you uh, saw up here on the platform today and also this past Friday, and then you joining with us and singing and all of the powerful feelings that that generates in our hearts, all of those are good and positive things, but that is not all that we should take away from Friday and from Sunday. We should all be challenged, maybe even convicted if need be, to respond in a way that would bring Jesus the glory that he deserves. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus and you've never believed in him to save you from your sins, you could glorify Jesus by believing today and being free from the penalty of your sin. As a believer, obviously, you may glorify Jesus today by allowing the great truth of the resurrection to lodge in your heart, to resonate in your intellect, and to change your life in some way that needs changing. And so that is why we gather today, and that's what I see as my goal today. Oh, we'll have fun, and we'll remember the resurrection for sure, but we also need to do something with that truth that we believe. It needs to affect and impact our lives. It is true that no religion stands or falls with a claim about the resurrection of its founder in the way that Christianity does. If it were not true this morning, there'd be no reason for us to be here. Our, our reason for gathering disappears. Our claim to continuance evaporates if Jesus isn't alive. You see, without the belief in the resurrection, 
the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. Even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of him being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity, therefore, hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And we can believe like they did too. In fact, we're going to learn from their faith. There are many evidences of the resurrection. I just want to recap some of these. We will not spend all of our time here, but it is important that we build a very solid and firm apologetic of why we believe in the resurrection. Everyone here needs to build that apologetic. Why do we believe this and can we defend it? But we also need to pass these simple but profound truths down to a generation who is following us because, as I will share with you in a few minutes, it is alarming at how quickly those who even profess to be Christians and evangelicals will waver and wander away from a full belief in the biblical record of the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. We must fight that by building this apologetic and transferring it to those who follow us. Obviously, the empty tomb stands as a monument to the resurrection. No body was found there. We read the account. Let's go there in Matthew 28 and read these familiar words. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has been resurrected just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. And after the priest had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. The truth is, there is an empty tomb. Jesus came out of that powerfully by the power of God and the Holy Spirit and was brought back to life after a real death. The empty tomb stands as a monument to his resurrection. 
obviously mentioned in this passage and other ones, you have the post-mortem appearances. Jesus dies, and then he is seen by many other people. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have testimony to this, which lines up, of course, with Matthew 28 and the truth there of him appearing to, to others. But here it says, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me, Paul says. So here we have these appearances of Jesus after his death. Another thing worth noting, of course, is the transformation of these men that are called apostles. What happens to them? Well, they're skittish, they're questioning, some are doubting. They are frightened, perhaps, and maybe even feeling somewhat defeated. And what happens in their life after these feelings when they know that Jesus has died. Well, something dramatic happens because all of them are transformed from being frightened and defeated to being very bold and courageous, even to the point of staking their lives on it. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But the transformation that is recorded in the biblical record and historical records shows that something dramatic happened that changed these apostles and emboldened them to serve Jesus and establish the church. His resurrection, of course, would have done that. We also have, following this foundation that was laid by the apostles, the emergence of the, of the Christian church, don't we? So what initiated this religious movement historically referred to in many cases as the community of the resurrection? that within 300 years dominated the entire Roman Empire and over the course of two millennia dominated all of Western civilization. How does that happen? Certainly not with a dead Jesus. The emergence of the Christian church stands tall as an apologetic to the resurrection of our Lord. And finally, in all of this, the willingness of early followers to die for their faith in Jesus. You say, wait a minute. How does that compare to what we see in some of the extreme factions of other world religions today where people are literally willing to strap explosives to themselves in the name of their religion and die? There is a big difference. Had these followers of Jesus known that it was false, they wouldn't have died for it. Had they known that Jesus really hadn't raised again from the dead, there is no way they would have staked their lives on it. You see, the people today who are willing to strap explosives to themselves and give their lives for their religion don't know any better. They don't know it's false. They believe it's true. But there was that one thing that established the truth in those first century followers of Jesus that burned it into their hearts to where it was irrefutable. And that was that Jesus had risen from the grave and was now alive. That's why they were willing to give their lives for what they believed. Even with all of that, don't you know that the world and believers alike struggle with this? We're told recently in studies that as many as one in four American evangelicals, is not certain that the physical resurrection of Jesus was a real historical event. 
These are people who claim to believe the Bible. I guess in part. I don't know. I'm not sure. These are people who, who claim to be Christian. They're called evangelicals. In fact, this same group of people called evangelicals would be those who would go out in the world trying to get other people to believe. And my question is for them, in what at this point? If you don't believe the biblical account of the physical resurrection of Jesus as a real historical event, you have nothing to offer the world whatsoever. What are you trying to get them to believe in? And only 55% of our friends, Christians in Great Britain, believe in the biblical account of the resurrection as well. It's not a uniquely American problem. A denial of the resurrection does not figure into early anti-Christian apologetics, though. That would be the obvious thing to attack if you wanted to stamp out a fledgling religion, right? But no one attacks it. Why do you think that is? As this author says, I think it was because too many people knew it was true. There may have been bewilderment about its significance, but the fact of Jesus' resurrection was never denied. Jesus was clearly raised from the dead. The argument was simply about what that could possibly mean. What does it mean this morning to us? It means that because Jesus demonstrated complete dominance over sin and death, that all those who believe may experience victory and life like never before. So as a result, believers must do some things. They must embrace some things. I want to talk to you about four of those things from our passage that we read in Romans earlier. We will not exposit all 23 verses of chapter 6, but we are going to look at a passage within this chapter that begins in verse 11. And in view of the resurrection of Jesus, we want to make sure those of us who believe are embracing that truth and allowing it to affect us in a way that is consistent with the gospel based on the resurrection of Jesus, that we say that we believe. We always talk about what the world may need more of. What does the world need more of today? And we talk about those kinds of things. I want to share with you something that the world needs less of today. The world needs less of believers who claim to believe in a life-transforming gospel, who live a life that is less than transformed. That's what the world needs less of today. And I want to call all of you who believe today to these things, that we would make sure that we don't just say on Easter Sunday morning that we believe in the resurrection with energy and zeal and emotion. All of that's fine but that we carry that with us and we allow that truth to impact us in a way that renovates us from the inside out and that truly can impact a godless culture with the truth of the gospel in an efficient and effective way. How do we do that? How is it that we should be living and conducting ourselves? Well, we find the answer to that, at least in part here, in these four things, and I want to talk to you about them today. The first thing that I want to say to you is that we need to consider ourselves, believers need to consider themselves dead to sin. Romans chapter 6 from the passage that was read earlier, verse 11, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Just like Jesus died, going back to verse 8 of the passage, and we believe that we will also live with him, but he died. And just like he died in the same way, we need to consider, we need to reckon and count ourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin. His name escapes me this morning. But an old pastor from the past used to say, you better be killing sin or it will be killing you. Dead to sin. Dying. Seeing yourself as being dead to it. It means to regard your old sinful nature as dead and unresponsive to sin. It means understanding that we are no longer bound to the old motives and desires and goals of the sinful nature that we truly understand and know that we are dead. But I like the Scripture here. It is truly something that is a reality that is provided for us, but there is some activity, there is some follow-through on our part that must take place. It speaks to the cooperation that happens between us and the Holy Spirit in our own progressive sanctification. You will see that in an imperative way, we are told in verse 11 of our text that this is something that we have to do. Salvation is not something we work for, but the work of God in salvation is something that we have to respond to. And that's what he's talking about here. Your response to this work that's been done to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is that you need to consider yourself to be dead to sin and the former way of life that you used to have. That's your part. And then, of course, we have to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That we have to lay aside the old motives and desires and goals, and we have to see ourselves as being totally dead and unresponsive to sin. I think it's easy for us to forget that we're living on display. People see us, people watch us, people take note of us. And they know when we're struggling. They know when we're not walking with the Lord. It's obvious, maybe even more obvious to them than what we realize, and it impacts and affects in a negative way our ability to have gospel conversations with them. I think one of the questions that we can ask ourselves this morning to kind of see where we stand with this is, the people that know me the best, my family, my closest friends, my coworkers, maybe my neighbors, the people that know me the best, can I effectively and comfortably have gospel conversations with them? Or is there something that holds me back because I know that they know me too well and what I'm going to tell them doesn't match the way I'm living? I think that's a good way. It's not the only way, but that's a good way to assess this. Many people have said to me over my ministry, and they said it before my ministry, I know, that family are the hardest people to share the gospel with. And I always used to wonder about that. I used to agree with that. I I may still agree to it, to a certain extent, but as I thought about it, I thought, I wonder why that's true. Is it true because they know us too well? Because we are truly not living our lives according to this powerful truth of the resurrection of Jesus, allowing it to transform us and renovate us, that we understand that because of our belief in Jesus, the one who died, was buried, and rose again for us, that we are to be unresponsive to sin. That those closest to us, 
see us for who we really are, and we can't preach to them a gospel because we're not living the gospel that we say we believe. Now, none of us are going to be perfect. We're going to sin in front of our closest family and friends and coworkers and acquaintances and neighbors for sure. But there ought to be a heart bent toward repentance and change and even having those conversations with them if they're witnesses to our sin so that they know that we understand that we have failed, that we need their forgiveness and God's forgiveness. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. In that, of course, is the embracing of our new life in Christ. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not just a list of don'ts. It includes some do's as well, doesn't it? It's the new life, alive. What does that talk about? It's a new pattern to follow for living. It's a new purpose for our living. It's a new prize to be won. And it's a new power to exhibit all in Jesus. Our worship, our satisfaction, and our purpose all change in this new life. We go from being driven by self and enjoying self and and satisfying self to knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and serving Jesus and everything. That's the new life that we have in Christ. Next of all, we should revolt against sin and the desires that drive it. Look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, do not let sin reign. There's the revolt. Don't let it reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And don't miss this. Where does all sin come from? If I'm going to revolt against it, what do I need to do? I have to deal with it in its desire stage. It's appeal to me for satisfaction. Any time that I sin, it means that I have created an idol. It means that I've turned away from Jesus as my full source of satisfaction and fulfillment, and I've gone running after something else that can't give it to me, but I've been tricked into believing that it can. It begins with desire. It begins in my own heart, in my own mind, before it ever becomes a word or an action. It is a desire. And the way that we revolt against sin is not just by changing our behavior. That comes as a result of our hearts changing. We have to deal with desire if we're going to revolt against sin. Let me give you quickly a list of practical things that may help us. You may want to write some of these down. Maybe write the ones that mean the most to you down as I go through them. First of all, identify personal weaknesses. If you want to revolt against sin... You need to know where you're weak. Not all of us are weak in the same spots. Not all of us are attracted to the same sins and desires. Identify your personal weaknesses and be honest about it. Don't lie to yourself. Secondly, learn how to recognize temptations. Build some safeguards in your life that will keep you away from things that could possibly be temptations. This may mean saying no to some things that other people can say yes to, but you realize that it's for your own good and your walk with the Lord. Confront sinful desires in your heart for what they really are. They are idols in the making. Our sinful nature is going to make sure through the power of Satan that we have sinful desires. That is something that we are going to wrestle with from now until we get to heaven. 
but confront those things as they are desires in our heart. When our heart becomes thirsty for things that are wrong, we need to quench it with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Confront sinful desires. Avoid sources of temptation. This could be any number of things. It could be a particular place. It could be particular people. It could be a particular activity. It could be indulging in something particular, taking something into our body of particular nature. Avoid sources of temptation. Practice self-restraint. Understand that boundaries are important. That self-control needs to be developed. Again, this might mean saying no to certain things that may or may not be wrong or evil, but that are protective. Invest in good habits of service. Keep yourselves busy in the work of the Lord. Now, that should be the product of a changed heart. That doesn't change your heart, and it doesn't mean that you're spiritual. But serving is to be the activity, and doing good works is to be the activity of someone who knows and loves Jesus. Get yourself busy in service as your heart is changing and as you are growing. Depend on grace and realize that you can't do it in your own strength. And embrace then the peace of Jesus that he has left with us through the Holy Spirit that he taught his disciples of before he left them. Revolt against sin and the desires that drive it. And finally, I want you to think of this with me as we close. Become a weapon for advancing righteousness. I love this in in verse 13. Did you see that in the text when it was read earlier? And do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, just like Jesus rose from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. You know why I like this? I like this word weapon because it reminds us, I think, of the warfare that we're in. We're we're in a battle. And our bodies, according to this passage, in fact, Paul goes to to great lengths to say all the parts of yourself. He he goes even a little further, I think, than what he did in Romans 12. I mean, he just points it out. You you give all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. You, You surrendered everything about you as a weapon for righteousness. We're in a war. I want to tell you briefly about something that happened recently. And I, I was appreciative for it, but I didn't understand it fully. I, I grew to understand it, especially over the course of the last week. But when I began the series on who is Jesus, I preached the first message. It was kind of an introductory message. Maybe you were here for that. And the worship center was clearing out, and I had taken care of all the items that I needed to do here before returning to my study and then eventually home for the day. And I was met by one of our faithful, mature members right back over here in this corner, just as I was getting ready to leave. They came up to me and made sure that they had my attention. They said, Pastor, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. And they said it with force, you know, and I thought, well, there's a little more to this than just praying for me. (laughs) I need to find out what this is all about. And I said, I appreciate that. I, I really do. I'll take all the prayer I can get. I need it desperately. And they said, no, I don't mean it that way. I mean, I do pray for you, and I am going to pray for you, but I mean it specifically. And I'm embellishing just a bit to give you the context. But the gentleman looked at me, and he said, I'm praying for you because Satan doesn't like what you're doing. 
when you start preaching about Jesus, you're starting this series, Who is Jesus? Satan doesn't like that. He doesn't want us to know more about Jesus. He doesn't want us to love Jesus more. He doesn't want us to embrace the life that we have in Jesus. And that's specifically why I'm praying for you. Because I think that you're going to face opposition. Well, you know what? He was right. (laughs) And you're not going to get the moaning story this morning of what's happened since then. But I'll just say it like this. He was right. Satan doesn't like the fact that we gather here today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And he doesn't like preachers who will stand and speak and Sunday school teachers who will stand and teach their classes and life group leaders and and, and Bible study leaders who will tell other people about Jesus. And he will oppose us at every turn because he doesn't want people to know about Jesus. He just doesn't. It's his defeat. And that's why I like the language here, because it reminds us that we are in a war. We are to surrender ourselves, all the parts of yourselves, as Paul says here, as weapons for righteousness. We are in a war. What is this talking about? Our skill, our capabilities, and our gifts can serve many purposes, both good and bad. But we choose, don't we? Isn't that part of what God gives us, the ability to choose, the skills and the capabilities and the gifting that he's given us? What purpose will it serve? Will it be good or bad? Will it be as a weapon for unrighteousness, as the verse says earlier, or will it be as a weapon for righteousness in the warfare to win a battle and a victory for the glory of God? That's our choice, isn't it? As I look at it, it seems to me that it's a matter of who is in control. Are we in control today of ourselves and our bodies? If we are, I think that's going to end in sin. We will fail. Is Jesus in control? Are we truly worshiping him and loving him and getting to know him better and serving him better? Is it Jesus? I think that leads to righteousness. I want to close with this thought. I really believe in this, there's a wonderful comparison and illustration that we can make. With this in mind, this context in mind, we we can be like lasers that can burn destructive holes in steel plates or do delicate cataract surgery. What's the difference? The difference is who's in control of the laser. There's a lot of power in your life. God has given you gifts and abilities and capabilities. He's given you contacts. You know people, a network. He's given you opportunities. We are are wealthy in these things. But if we're not surrendered to Jesus, and if if we are not totally letting him be in control, considering ourselves to be dead to sin and embracing the new life and revolting against sin, and focusing on what it means to be a weapon for advancing righteousness, we'll still have power, and we'll still be a powerful influence, but it'll be destructive. It'll be destructive. It'll be destructive to our witness and the ability to have gospel conversations. It'll be destructive to believers as well who are looking to us as their example. There are few things more destructive than one who mentors someone negatively because of a poor example. 
So let's be positive in this and have a positive impact and effect. And let's surrender to the control of Jesus and do so with joy and adoration because truly he is alive. Don't forget this truth, though. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may have come today, you may have never believed in Jesus, you may have come just because it's Easter Sunday and you wanted to be in church. I'm thankful that you came today. If that's the case, I'm glad you came to Easter Sunday. I'm very glad that you're here. I hope you'll come back. But I, more importantly than coming back to this church, I hope that you'll consider Jesus and that you'll think about what this weekend means in its fullness, that he died on the cross because he needed and had to pay the price and the penalty for our sin so that we could be free from that penalty and not have to pay it and so that we could believe in him, our risen Lord, and have salvation from that sin. Maybe what I just said makes no sense to you at all. And that's okay, too. That's okay. I would just invite you to a conversation. I'd love to have the opportunity to speak with you. If you're questioning, if you wonder, maybe you didn't understand hardly anything I said today. That's all right. I want you to ask your questions, though. I'd love to have the opportunity to speak with you and to share with you more fully how you can know Jesus, like all of us who have believed know Jesus. Don't be afraid to approach me or any of the other pastors before you leave today. We would love to have that conversation with you.